Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this is episode 74. I've got a couple of interesting maternity emergencies for the non-maternity practitioner. Before I get into that, I just want to say I'm pretty excited today because episode 74 for me is the start of a little bit of a break because my friend and our colleague, Dr. Rebecca Shoup, has kindly recorded a toxicology mini-series for us. So if all goes according to plan, then the next few episodes, you should be hearing all about toxicology from the perspective of the rural or resource-limited emergency department. And as for me, well, I'll be back with you around episode 80 to help round out this next set of R&R Round podcasts to bring us into episode 100. If you're one of our seven regular listeners who's been listening for a while now, then you know that we have committed to trying to produce 100 episodes for this run at least. After that, I'm not sure what's going to happen to this podcast, but I will remind you all that we're always on the lookout for any keen colleagues with a nursing background, paramedic background, residents, medical students, staff physicians with an interesting resuscitation case based in a rural or resource limited environment. And if that's you, then contact us. Go on over to our website, that's podcast.rnrrounds.ca slash contact. Drop us a little note. We'd love to have a chat with you and see if we can't bring you into our little project here at RNR Rounds Studios and see if we can't keep this podcast going for another 50 episodes or so. Who knows? Anyway, let's get into our cases today. So just to remind everyone, I am not a maternity doctor. When I first started out as a rural generalist, I ended up delivering maybe 100 babies myself as a staff physician, but then I went and I retrained in GP anesthesia, and since that time, my involvement really has been limited to the role of the anesthesiologist as part of the team. But that doesn't stop maternity emergencies from rolling in from time to time in non-maternity hospitals. And so it's important that we have a concept of what can go wrong and what we need to do. Because while most problems with pregnancy and delivery can wait, there is a certain amount of grace period in order to get the patient transferred to the correct facility or get the correct physician into the building, there are certain conditions which are time-limited. And so I've chosen a couple of those today to share with you, which I saw myself over the last month. So the first case was a query ectopic pregnancy. Now, I feel like there aren't very many things that are written in stone in emergency medicine, but acute onset abdominal or pelvic pain in a woman of childbearing age has to be considered an ectopic until proven otherwise. And I expect that everyone listening to this podcast knows this and agrees with this statement. So this was a case of a 28-year-old G3P2A1 who tells me that she had miscarried five weeks ago and has had ongoing vaginal discharge, bloody in nature. And initially, she was being followed with quantitative beta-HCGs, as she's supposed to, and it had started at 6,000 and had dropped down to 500. And at that point, she'd gotten busy and decided not to follow up. There hadn't been any pain. It had just been this ongoing discharge. She hadn't thought too much about it. And then earlier that day, she'd had a sharp shooting pain in her pelvis, just slightly to the left of center line, and thought that she'd come into emergency and get it checked out. She also told a story of passing tissue early on at that five-week mark when the miscarriage was occurring. And so in her mind, the miscarriage was done. It was just the remnants. But for me, as a non-maternity doctor, I feel like five weeks is a long time for this to be dragging on. Plus now we have acute onset 
abdominal or pelvic pain, I suppose in this case, I need to make sure that this is not an ectopic. Now in this instance of Fort St. Nowhere, when the urine test is collected, it goes to the lab almost always. And that's one of my pet peeves because in emergency, we have these point of care tests that are very accurate and we can have a urine result within two minutes. But if the urine is sent to the lab, typically we're looking at a 25 or 30 minute delay before it's reported. Anyway, that was the case in this particular instance of Fort St. Nowhere. So she's given the urine sample before I see her. I'm getting this history. I'm thinking, ugh, I need to make sure this isn't an ectopic. So while I'm waiting for that urine result, let's just scan her with the ultrasound. Now, if you perform bedside ultrasound, you will know that it really, really helps when you have a giant fluid-filled bladder to look at the uterus through. And this was not the case because this woman had just emptied her bladder. And she had a little bit of extra adipose tissue, which again makes point-of-care ultrasound a little bit more difficult. But that's okay. I'm going to have a look anyway. What I notice is that the uterine vault appears to be empty, which I don't really know how to interpret that in the absence of a beta-HCG. But at this stage, it's neither reassuring nor unreassuring. But let's have a look around. Let's figure out where this pain is coming from. And so I take a look at that uterus in transverse as much as I'm able to through the adipose tissue and the lack of bladder. And what I see is a fairly sizable cyst, maybe measuring about a centimeter and a half over towards the left adnexa. Now this is poor resolution. I'm not getting textbook images, but I can definitely make out something that's fluid filled, does not have any color flow. This is not a vessel and it's not some sort of contiguous tube like a segment of bowel. This is an isolated pocket of fluid in a cystic configuration. And that really makes me worry. This almost screams ectopic pregnancy in the presentation of this patient with acute abdominal pelvic pain. But I really need to make sure that we have a positive beta-HCG before I ring the alarm bells. And so the urine beta comes back and sure enough, she is pregnant. So now I'm thinking, darn it, looks like we have a ectopic pregnancy. And it sounds like she had a miscarriage earlier of a intrauterine pregnancy so is this one of those extremely rare zebras, the heterotopic pregnancy, whereby you have a twin gestation and one is located in the uterus, as you would expect, and that has miscarried. And now there was a secondary ectopic, which had been missed, and now it's causing problems five weeks later. I don't know. It's not really my pay grade to try and figure that out, but I'm wondering in the back of my mind, could this be? And for the record, the literature isn't really able to tell us precisely what the rate of heterotopic pregnancies are, but it's widely accepted that you take the rate of twinning and you multiply that by the rate of ectopic. So it could be as rare as one in 30,000 pregnancies. However, some authors report it as common as one in 3,000. So that's not particularly helpful, but regardless, it is a very rare finding. Anyway, this lady's acute abdominal pain has settled quite nicely with a little bit of, I think, oral hydromorphone is what I gave her, maybe a little bit of IV on Dancitron. I don't remember exactly, but I think there was maybe a bit of nausea, and that would be my standard approach. And so at this point, she's able to walk comfortably. I call the obstetrician. She thinks it's kind of funny that I think it's a heterotopic pregnancy. She might be right, and she accepts the patient. And so I go back to the patient and her husband, and I say, would you like a half hour ambulance ride or do you feel comfortable enough to go by private car? Her vital signs are absolutely fine. There's been no issue whatsoever. Her bleeding hasn't picked up at all. The pain is under control at the moment. She is okay to go by private car in my opinion and that is her preference. So a couple of days later, I see her for a completely unrelated issue in emergency 
And she tells me that she had been to the larger center. She'd received a diagnostic ultrasound. She'd met with the obstetrician. And the obstetrician had given her the choice between getting a shot, which I presume is methotrexate, and getting surgery. And so this patient had opted for the shot and was hoping that this would resolve on its own so she could avoid surgery. Fair enough. Anyway, I was curious as to what's going on because in my mind, the typical treatment for ectopic is not methotrexate or any type of shot. It is surgery. And so I dug up the diagnostic ultrasound. What it says is there is a two by three centimeter heterogeneous soft tissue mass within the distal left cornea suspicious for a failed interstitial ectopic pregnancy. There's no free fluid or anything else to find. So that's interesting. This is a failed pregnancy, and that's why it waited five weeks beyond the first miscarriage presentation to really develop. And it is not truly ectopic because it is in the uterus, but because it is in the distal cornea, meaning that little cone which the fallopian tube enters into, it is still technically an ectopic pregnancy. And this just goes back to the fact that medicine is really not black and white. Often the layperson will refer to black and white example of either you're pregnant or you're not. Well, guess what? Even that analogy fails because you can have an ectopic. You can have a not even proper ectopic. It's an ectopic in the corner of the uterus that's going to cause major problems and yet it is still a pregnancy. Or you could have a molar pregnancy. There's so many ways where you could be pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. Don't we all love medicine for that reason? Anyway, going back to the bedside ultrasound, as I explained, with a little bit of extra adipose tissue, with the absence of a fluid-filled bladder, all I could really appreciate was that there was a cystic structure off of the midline, and certainly not in the usual endometrial area within the uterus. Now, from a textbook and advanced ultrasound teaching perspective, when you see a pregnancy location in the uterus, You want to make sure that you have at least eight millimeters of uterine myometrium around the gestation in all locations to rule out this very thing, this intrauterine implantation in the wrong location of the uterus, that is in the cornea. And so if you are a bedside ultrasound user, just keep that in the back of your mind next time you perform ultrasound on an early pregnancy. When you identify that pregnancy, just have a look in different planes and make sure that you've got a minimum of eight millimeters of myometrium around, because if you have less, you want to refer on for a diagnostic ultrasound and potentially obstetrics because of this exact problem. Anyway, that was case one. I am a little bit gun shy now of these ectopic pregnancies, just having had a couple of catastrophic ectopics in the past year where women are trying to bleed out and have blood pressures of 60 systolic. This case from last month was not one of those. She was hemodynamically stable. She was presenting early on. There hadn't been any rupture. There wasn't even any free fluid in the abdomen. So this was a very different caliber, but I have the utmost respect for ectopic pregnancies. And if there's one thing you take away from this case, it's just that reaffirmation that you absolutely have to consider ectopic in every woman of childbearing age until proven otherwise. That beta-HCG is going to help you rule out a lot of those cases, and bedside ultrasound is going to help you as well, especially if you move beyond that beginner-intermediate level where you're just looking to see if there's an intrauterine gestation or a bit of free fluid in the pelvis up into looking into the adnexa and elsewhere for other signs of pathology too. And hey, let's put in a plug for the Rural Ultrasound Fellowship. 
If you are a beginner or intermediate user of bedside ultrasound and you would like to round out your education, learn some comprehensive applications and learn how to use this properly and definitively, then you should check out our year-long virtual program. The information on that is available at ruralultrasound.ca. We are currently offering intakes three times a year. I think we're pretty full up for January. We might have a little bit of room. And hey, the SRPC is also really flogging their advanced training bursary. So if you are a rural physician and you're eligible for that, you may want to really check this out because there is a narrow window of opportunity for you to go and get this training paid for 100% especially if you live in provinces where there isn't extra scholarship money or bursary money for rural physician training. Anyway, enough of the advertising. Let's get on to case number two. So my second emergency maternity case was completely different. We weren't in the first trimester. Turns out we were in the third trimester. 36 weeks gestational age, I believe. I think this was a G2P1. And the patient says the pregnancy had been going quite well, but she was being followed not in big smoking tin, but the quaternary care center by obstetrics because she had a known placenta previa that they were hoping was going to shift out of the way. Well, guess what? That placenta did not shift out of the way because she came in now late in the evening with brisk bleeding that was painless. So your classic presentation for placenta previa bleeding. And initially, I didn't know any of this because I was on for emergency, and this instance of Fort St. Nowhere has its own dedicated maternity doctor. So when she presented at triage, the maternity doctor was called, and she was taken over to LDR. And about five minutes later, I got a panicked call from the ward saying, we need you to call the transportation service right now because this woman needs to go to Big Smoking Tin right away because she has this bleeding placenta previa, and it's bad. So, of course, it may not be my technical jurisdiction, but of course I'm going to do what I can to help out my rural colleagues in a rural center. I drop everything, I hustle over there, and it turns out that this woman's blood pressure is now in the mid-90s systolic. Her heart rate is about 120 or so, which suggests to me that this is probably a significant amount of blood loss already. So if you extrapolate this presentation now to the ATLS shock classification, which is a little bit of an obtuse exercise, but still it does give us some insight with a heart rate of about 120, a blood pressure that's a little bit decreased. We're looking at class three shock by ATLS definitions, and that correlates to approximately 30 to 40% of circulating volume lost. Now, this is not technically a trauma, and I'm pretty sure that this ATLS system has not been validated for pregnant women, or probably women at all. But still, I don't think we need to debate that. I think we just need to recognize that probably a significant amount of blood has been lost. It's coming out at a fairly alarming rate, according to the maternity nurse. We need to get this patient into Big Smoking Tin ASAP. And happily, in this instance of Fort St. Nowhere, we are only 25 minutes away from Big Smoking Tin by road, which is great. And that means we've got a chance. So in this case, we called for all of our O-negative blood, both units, and we gave a gram of TXA, and we started large bore IVs. And while we were waiting for the ambulance, because we had a little bit of extra time, my colleague, the maternity physician, who did show up shortly thereafter, ended up putting a Foley in as well. Of note, we squeezed that first unit of blood in using a pressure bag. It probably took about five minutes or less to squeeze that thing in, despite all of the logistics and excitement and moving her over to an ambulance stretcher and whatnot. 
it went in very quickly. We certainly were not running that in at a trickle rate. When you have someone who's bleeding to death, you do not want to be wasting time trying to infuse blood slowly. The second unit of blood was handed to the paramedics and they infused that en route. And so that case ended well. But by definition, Fort St. Nowhere is not always located just 25 minutes from Big Smokington. And if this is you and you are in a more remote location, then chances are you do not have enough O negative blood to keep filling the dam when it's hemorrhaging out. And unfortunately, in a situation like this, like a placenta previa or even a ruptured ectopic, like I made reference to prior, you don't have enough blood and you don't have enough time. So in that case, I don't know how many options you have, but if you are in a surgical maternity hospital and you have surgeon and an anesthetist available, that is probably your next best bet. And I am not a surgeon, but my best guess would be in a situation like this with a hemorrhaging placenta previa, even with only a limited amount of blood, my best guess would be a stat C-section plus or minus a hysterectomy type thing, whatever is required to control the bleeding. Again, not a surgeon, don't quote me on this, but I think that is going to probably be this patient's best bet because there is no way that I can think of that you could move this patient from, say, Anuvik to Yellowknife via a two-and-a-half-hour flight if all you have is two units of blood. Okay, yeah, so that kind of makes sense. But Jonathan, what if I work in an instance of Fort St. Nowhere where we don't even have surgical abilities? And in that case, I'm not honestly sure what you would do. I think your first move would be to call a specialist in whichever receiving facility you use and get their advice. But ultimately, the buck stops at cardiac arrest, and specifically PEA. And in that case, in a pregnant woman with PEA arrest, this is an indication for perimortem cesarean. Now that's a scary thought, and happily I have never had to do this. In fact, if there's any listener out there who has had to do a perimortem C-section before, I would really appreciate it if you'd pop over to the website and send me a note, because I would love to interview you and hear about that. My understanding... In a perimortem C-section, the goal is to remove the baby as quickly as possible from the mother, and that is to give the baby and the mother the best chance of survival both. So my understanding, the way you do this is you make a giant vertical incision, basically from the umbilicus right down to the pubic symphysis, and you just keep cutting. You're going to go through skin, you're going to go through muscle layers, you're going to find the uterus, you're going to cut through the uterus, you're going to pull that baby out. Now, depending on the situation, the baby may have a better prognosis. The baby may have a worse prognosis. Hopefully you have a second or third or fourth set of hands who can then take over that baby and allow you to focus on the mother. But the beauty of the perimortem C-section, if we can use the word beauty, is that by removing the baby and the amniotic fluid, you are removing compression of the IVC and therefore you are increasing return of blood back to the heart. Also, in the event of a hemorrhage or some sort of maternity-related cause of bleeding, hopefully at this point you could remove that placenta, maybe stop that internal uterine hemorrhaging by direct pressure, or perhaps there's a way to rotate the uterus and cut off the arterial blood supply, creating a little bit of a tourniquet. I don't know. Not a surgeon. And that's where having conversation with the surgeon on speakerphone in Big Smokington, they would be able to walk you through what is necessary. 
Now, obviously, it would be ideal if we don't have to wait until PEA in order to perform this life-saving perimortem C-section. But if you don't have an operating room, you don't have anesthesiology, you don't have surgical skills, I don't know how realistic this is. And this is why I think your best bet is to get that expert on the phone, on speakerphone, maybe even on some sort of video conference system so they can actually see what's going on and walk you through what they want to do. Gang, this is scary stuff, especially the more remote you are from the receiving hospital where they can do the definitive surgery or they have the definitive blood bank. But we live in Canada, and unfortunately, Canada is so huge that it's just impractical to think that we can have a massive blood bank in every little instance of Fort St. Nowhere. Happily, these sorts of catastrophic OB emergencies are extremely rare. These problems are identified in advance, patients are sequestered in locations closer to the definitive surgical care, and outcomes are typically good. But as we know, we get those patients who ignore good advice or just hide altogether and show up in labor at full term. And this is the challenge that we as rural and resource-limited physicians are up against. I think take-home message in both cases, speed is of the essence. If you have active bleeding, then treat that as you would for pretty much any other type of bleeding. You want to resuscitate, probably less crystalloid, more whole blood, and think about using some tranexamic acid as well. One gram IV over 10 minutes is the typical loading dose. And if you have that patient for more than three hours, you need to think about running that second gram in over, I believe, eight hours, whatever your local protocol is. Call for help as early as you can and really try and expedite that transport if feasible. All right, gang, I hope you enjoyed those cases. It has been a real pleasure. I am definitely looking forward to having a couple of months off here to recharge and hopefully come back with some new and interesting stuff. Again, we are looking for help and support if you have interesting ideas or questions that could help us generate new episodes when we come back from our toxicology mini-series. If you have an ambition to get involved, we are always looking for help. In front of the microphone, behind the microphone, doing some episode research on the website. There's so many ways where you could contribute and we would certainly appreciate that little boost and hopefully get us some sort of future beyond episode 100. Anyway, enough of that. Gang, I will catch you again in the mid-80s. Bye for now. The R&R Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.